You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. Our guest today is Robert Rosenberg who is uh, the author of a book called Around the Corner to Around the World. And it teaches and tells his journey uh, running uh, a little chain you might know about called Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, He was with the chain from 1963 until he retired in 1998. Um, And that was a tremendous time of growth for the brand. So welcome, welcome to the main course. And um, you know, I wanna get an idea a little bit first about the book and then we'll get into you know, what you did at Duncan. Um, so why did you wanna write a book now and what was the whole process like for you? Oh my goodness. Uh, basically, I think like most people, uh, you try to make a difference, whether it's in a, uh, a business or in a family or in a community. And I had the, the, the fortune, the good fortune, of being picked at a very young age by my father, who was the founder of our company, to take over the company when I was just 25 years old and a freshly minted MBA. And I had the good fortune of being able to run that business through all of its growth years for 35 years. And then went on to become an adjunct professor in my second career and a board member uh, for some other large food service companies like Domino's and Sonic Restaurants. And those gave me an opportunity to sort of reflect back on the 35 years I was running Duncan and the successes and, quite truthfully, the setbacks that we encountered during those years. And people increasingly said, you know, there's an interesting story here that others may benefit by. And that was my hope. My hope was uh, the time was right. The first 35 years I was busy running a business. The next phase, the next phase of my career, my second career, was basically counseling others and, and teaching and codifying what I had learned. And so this stage of my life, it seemed like the appropriate time to sit down and, and, and put it all down in and, and, and the hopes that it could help other people, uh, whether they're trying to design a life or whether they're uh, trying to grow and scale a food service business, whether they're looking to buy a franchise or to grow their franchise. There were lessons there I thought that might be of benefit and value to others. So what was the meaning behind the title? The title really tries to convey the journey that uh, the company really was on. It started most modestly back. It's about to enjoy its 70th anniversary. And it started with one little store in Quincy, Massachusetts. And through a series of happenstances, uh, got rebirthed from a little business called Open Kettle which was part of a larger business called Universal Food Systems, which was a business my father ran of seven or eight little restaurant businesses, including pancake houses and burger shops and, 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 and pizza parlors and vending machine company. And, and it, it basically started quite modestly. It got rebirthed uh, again in 1950. So it started in 1948 as Open Kettle, got rebirthed as Duncan in 1950. And then I would say that when I came along, uh, while I was in graduate school, had an opportunity to take a look at what was going on in the business. The business was faltering a, a, a bit, maybe more than a little bit. Earnings hadn't grown. Uh, a competitor, my uncle, who was my father's partner, 
and of all things, when the partnership broke in 1955, took his share of the proceeds from the sale of the business and started a competitive business called Mr. Donut. And they were about to overtake us back in 1963. And the business got rebirthed again in 1963, again, when I joined the company as CEO, fresh out of school within a few weeks of graduation, actually. And it, and it tells the tale of the adaptability, the changes, uh, the, the setbacks, the successes, the learning points, some of which were real concussions, I'd have to say, along the way, and in terms of what it was like from where we started to where we are today, 70 years later. That was one of the refreshing things about reading the book, is that you really don't shy away from all of the challenges that you faced. Um, so how did you break it down into just a dozen lessons? I broke it down in a couple of ways. Uh, now, number one, uh, um, 35 years is a long time to run a business. And, and actually, there were uh, at least five or six distinct eras within them. So I broke the book down into each era. So the competition kept changing all the time, and the, and the consumer kept changing all the time. Technology kept changing all the time. And so at each era, there was a different set of circumstances that that basically uh, presented itself to the company, really requiring a, a different um, response. And in addition to that, uh, I also sort of told each era and our responses through the lens of what a CEO does. And I, there's a lot more than 12 lessons, but I, I thought that was all that was digestible. I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, when I attend a seminar or I read a book or I talk to a colleague, if I've got a naughty problem, I generally only take away maybe two, possibly three nuggets out of, a, out of a situation. Generally speaking, at least in my case, I most always find what resonates with me is the very issue that I was wrestling with at the moment. And, and the book really is sort of a whole buffet of ideas uh, for all stages of business, and for all sets of circumstances. So I synthesized down and highlighted the 12 I thought were most impactful that would be useful. But throughout the pages, I can tell you that there are many other lessons in addition to the 12. But those are the ones that stood out most to me and ones I thought that maybe would be most digestible nuggets for the reader. Who should read this book and what do you hope they take away from it? The book really has something for everybody. Uh, if you're just starting out and a would-be entrepreneur, I think uh, the discussion about the, the, the importance of apprenticeship to learn your trade. As a kid, you know, I took over a business at 25, but the fact of the matter is I did put my 10,000 hours of learning in my trade, running cafeterias, running uh, canteen carts, um, running Dunkin' Donut shops during summer vacations while I was in college. I went to hotel school. Um, so, so I think there are lessons for would-be entrepreneurs is, is uh, Malcolm Gladwell says in order and behind every success you'll generally find people putting in a lot of hours of apprenticeship. So that would be one lesson. I think for another would-be entrepreneur, I think the whole notion of persistence, the importance of it, the ability to pick yourself up and be able to dust yourself off. It, rarely do businesses start out of the gate and are successful. They almost always invariably run into problems, as did ours when we opened Open Kettle as a diversification move from our, our universal food system business. It didn't start off successfully. 
It was a series of happenstances. Um, the change in management of the next generation of family was another change. Uh, so, so all of that really speaks to the whole notion of second, third chances and uh, the importance of persistence. To others, I think, uh, uh, starting out, I think people should pay attention to the great opportunities and wonderful conditions that exist within the franchise system. The ability to buy into a system to to sort of short, short circuit those 10,000 hours of apprenticeship uh, and to enhance your, your odds of success dramatically. It's a not well understood phenomena, I think, the whole issue of franchising and the role it can play, not only in terms of changing a family's uh, lifestyle and providing an opportunity that might not have existed otherwise, but quite truthfully, in some of these more mature systems, uh, they have the capability of immense growth and real wealth creation. And for a company that's scaling itself, that might have a few units and wants to grow larger, the conversations that are in the book, sort of in the for those companies in their adolescent years, as we went through them, the rocky adolescent years, uh, the whole notion of planning, how we came away from our tragic second era, where I almost ran the business off a cliff because of the wrong strategy, the wrong objectives, and, and what the learning is from that, and how we corrected ourselves, how we pulled ourselves back from the cliff and instituted better procedures uh, and better um, confidants to be able to make sure that I didn't suffer in the future as the leader in other mission creeps and make the same mistake again. That And how we recruited and retained an above average organization. I think all, all of those are useful. And for larger companies and readers of people who are running a larger business, I think how we organized our board could be very instructive and helpful to people. It was unusual, and I think kind of trailblazing. I think that could be of real value to even the larger enterprise. So as I said, there's a little something for everybody there. And that, that was my hope. Uh, and that's what comes with 35 years. You're bumping a, a lot of setbacks, and there's a lot of learning if you can survive, and that's where persistence comes into play. And, and so that's what I hope people can take away from the book. Depends upon where you're at and what you're wrestling with. I think there's something in there for everybody. You know, one of the things that you talk about is the four critical functions of an effective CEO. You know, I don't want to give anything away, but maybe if you can tease that a little bit. How fundamentally, uh, everybody knows who works in business uh, or has a job, doesn't even have to be in business. Events come in over the transom constantly at you, you know, constantly being bombarded with issues. And if you're not careful to s sort of tease out those things that really make a difference, you can get sidetracked and you can get off course. So as a result of moving through and as a result of the mistakes I made in the second five-year era of the company's growth, basically I, I came to the conclusion that the CEO had to focus on a couple of things, four things in particular. The first was he or she has to shepherd strategy, sort of what you want to be, you know, what your purpose is as a business, true in your life too, and, and what you want to be, what you want to have, those key three or four most important objectives, and then what four or five strategic levers you're likely to have to pull to marshal scarce resources, because every human being, every entity, maybe one as rich as the United States government, cannot do, in my view, my opinion, more than four or five things effectively at any one given time. And, and then finally, the tactics that support each of those strategic levers. The second activity that I think is necessary for a CEO to have spot on, otherwise there would be no success, is the ability to recruit, retain, and motivate an organization that's capable of implementing the strategy. And the third 
is communications, the importance, and this is very important, the importance of being able to align all constituents uh, behind what you're trying to do to get alignment. And the, the, one of the big turn lesson points for me is oftentimes you think when you say something once people get it and the, that's just not been my experience. My experience is that people's lives are very busy. They're dealing with family issues, they're dealing with health issues, they're dealing with all kinds of things in their life, money issues, and that oftentimes it's hard for them to focus when they hear once or twice or three times even. So we used to travel with our district managers to visit 100 stores a year to listen firsthand on the front lines to the people who are meeting the customers. We actually worked in a store. And all of those touch points were opportunities in addition to an annual budget call, in addition to an annual meeting of all management. These visits, these high-touch visits one-on-one -on -one, were an opportunity again to, to ensure that everybody was understanding what we were about, what we were focusing on, what we wanted to achieve, why we were providing an important benefit to the consumer and our franchise were providing wonderful opportunities to people. And, and so communications was a, a third element of what I thought was critically important for a CEO. And the last one, as we see in today's world, unfortunately, is that the world is stochastic. Things come out of the blue that could threaten your very existence. And I often tell my children, and I know myself, uh, a, a saying I often have called, life is lumpy. And, and that's certainly true in a life, and it's certainly true in business. And, and as a result of that, there are going to be crises that, are, that occur, that crop up. And in our case, I could point to maybe three or four very critical ones in the 35 years that could have spelled the end of the business easily had we not been able to mobilize for crisis, where, where uh, we pick a small team of people who are expert at the, at the task at hand to identify what the problem is, while the rest of the organization is free to run the business on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, that, that was a, a critical element as well. And generally because the problems are so existential to the very life of the business itself, the CEO is almost invariably a part of that small isolated team that's chosen to fight or to solve the particular crisis at the moment where the, the CEO has to take full responsibility for what's going on and, and communicate, communicate, communicate. So those are the four lenses through which I tell each era. And each era was different, and the circumstances were different, the responses were different. But, but through those four, four lenses in each era, uh, basically that was sort of how we navigated uh, our way through. And I hope that's useful to people. One of the phrases that struck me as I was reading the book was, more than anything else, it is a story of change. So why did you write that, and what do you think others can learn from that? Well, as I said before, uh, things are changing constantly. The, the com competition is always changing. I had a very close relationship with uh, Ron Joyce, who was the founder of, uh, of Tim Horton Donuts. I had a close relationship with Dick Nelio uh, for years, who was uh, the CEO of Mr. Donut, my competitors. Uh, the competition was changing, and the consumer kept changing, and new offerings kept coming in. Um, you and I talked a bit about, uh, about Morton's Donuts uh, as an introduction on the scene, a frozen donut introduction in the 70s, and, and, and uh, McDonald's introduction of breakfast in the 70s. All of those things are new circumstances that require new responses by management. So continually, a business has to be very agile, has to be willing to adapt to those things. And we had, uh, initially, a lot of that was serendipitous. A lot of ideas came from franchise owners. 
ideas came from within management. Some ideas even came from customers. Uh, all kinds of, and a competitor once I uh, hired the marketing guy away from competitor, and basically he brought my first new product idea to me. Back when I was just a kid, when I was 25 years old, and starting with a company, my first product introduction, uh, product extension, which was a huge success, came, came from the marketing guy from a competitor. Um, so it comes from all directions, and later on we became much more sophisticated about how we were planting these saplings well in advance of the need for them through very careful planning. But we would try a lot of things. We would be highly adaptable. We'd keep a clear eye on the horizon. We had product managers and bakery beverages and, and donuts, and their job was to keep news current, uh, new products, product extensions, price-offs, promotions, all of the news that was necessary to enthuse and to appeal to, a cha to our consumer, to our customers. Yeah, one of the things that you're, that you're talking about um, is that, you know, a lot of these, the brand's greatest successes have been because you listened. You listen to the franchise owners, you listen to your executives, and you listen to your customers. You know, that includes the munchkin. So if you can kind of tell a little bit about maybe how that came about and also why you think it's crucial to kind of always be listening. Because I, I, I got a real awakening when I ran into problems was sitting in my living room reading a book called The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam. And he was writing about the Johnson and Kennedy administrations of the Vietnamese War. And our country was being led by Ivy Leaguers, the best and the brightest, theoretically, that our country had to offer. But they weren't going into the hamlets and meeting with community leaders who were waging the war on a day-to-day -day basis. Actually, they were relying on body counts and numbers and, and no real high touch. And as a result of that, they lost uh, touch with what was actually happening and losing the war. And Halberstam called that uh, hubris, that the real source of problems was the leadership of the United States was suffering from hubris. That's the Greek word for arrogance. And as I sat in my, my living room reading this book in the middle of a, a crisis, uh, we had lost our way. Uh, franchisees, a few franchisees had decided to, to sue us. They were very unhappy with what was going on. My, one of my best and closest friends, who was my CFO, who was with me from business school on, gone to work for Goldman after Goldman Sachs after, after graduate school, but he came to join me as CFO. He left because he had lost confidence in my leadership. And basically I said, my God, Halberstam could be just as well talking about me. And the fact is that I had a lot of success, the company did in the first five years. I basically rationalized all the little businesses, sold them off, closed them down, focused on Dunkin' Donuts, went from 100,000 in pre-tax profits to $750,000, went public to equitize my father's holdings. He kept trying to sell the company. I didn't want it sold. I thought there was a lot of promise in the business. And, and, and that success created, I guess, in me, an arrogance. And, and I set the wrong objectives, growing too fast, diversifying the company, changed the mission, a whole host of things. And I really had a transformational moment when I realized that I didn't have all the answers that I might have been cocky, but boy, it's hard to put an old head on, on a young body. And that, that's, that was, in effect, my problem. And it was at that moment in time we convened as a management team and decided that we were going to start to listen. We were going to go into the field. We were going to create an advisory council. We were going to meet with franchisees. We were going to 
be open to their suggestions. We were going to invite them in, apologize for our lack of focus and our wrong direction. And we were going to invite them in to help us fix it. We were going to travel with them. We were going to counsel with them. And we did it. We turned the corner. And it was a result of a real setback and, and almost a total failure. The board of directors fired me. Luckily, we had seen the error of our ways, and I honestly believe we were well on our way to fixing them. And I made a, a, an appeal to the board to give me another quarter to fix it. And uh, luckily, they did. And, and quite truthfully, uh, we really learned our lesson and, and, and never looked back. Now to Munchkins. So out of that comes a call from Bob Demery, who is the franchise owner of a couple of stores in Hartford, Connecticut. In fact, there was a young man about my age who actually taught me how to make donuts at the Natick store, our third store in the chain. And, and he and I were close friends. And he, he called me and he said, you, you have to come down to Hartford. He said, you know, I'm excited. He, Edna, my wife, uh, decided uh, for years we'd always, uh, at, at Halloween, would always pick up these little, the middle cuts off of our first cut uh, cake, cake donut mix. And, 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 and frost them or cinnamon them or, or have them plain and put them in these little cellophane bags and hang them on a potato chip clip holders. But we did that for a week or so at the time. He said, Edna has created a brand new donut cutter. We can make one fifth of a donut in the form of a donut hole. And, and she, she's filled them, she powders them, she finishes them, and she's piled them high in the front showcase. And my God, they're, they're going out the door. People are up the lines. Our business is a 20%. <laughs> That's a big number, 20%. So Tom Schwartz, the COO of the company, myself, and Bob Camerson, the head of marketing, got in a car the next day, and we were in Hartford. And lo and behold, it was exactly as he described it. Edna had created this sort of product extension. Now we could sell something 24-7 uh, uh, all year long, not just at Halloween, much better, a beautiful merchandising idea. We came back to the ad agency and said, you know, here's this idea. It was actually a, an outside agency that we had used for the hamburger chain that we had subsequently closed down called Howdy Beef Burger. And, and, and basically, Hell Holiday, which went on to become a huge advertising agency, and, and said, what, what would you do with this idea? So they said, why don't we call it Penny Poppers? And we sat with that for a week or so and said, that's a cute name, Dunkin' Donuts, Penny Poppers. It's sort of an alliteration. It's, it makes sense, but we can't. It was the middle of 1973. There were gas lines. There was inflation. And we, Nixon had put in wage and price controls. We would never be able to keep them anywhere near a penny. And, and then Hill Holiday said, you know, every year at, at, oh, uh, uh, around April, uh, CBS, I think it was, puts on The Wizard of Oz. Every year, it's an annual, it's a classic, it's a kid's classic. I know my boys would always uh, watch it every single year around that time, time of the year. And he said, you know, the, they have little characters in there, munchkins, the little people, and maybe we can call it munchkins. And, and uh, we, we asked uh, Archie Southgate, who was a board member and a lawyer, and ultimately went on to head Robes and Gray, very well-known and, and prestigious law firm in Boston, who was a longtime board member of the company. And he, he called and found out that it belonged to Jack's Cookie Company in Louisiana. They hadn't found a name for it. So he had negotiated a deal for a dollar a year. We could uh, get the name and trademark for Munchkins. And, and same store sales in 1973 with all the gas lines. You can only buy gas on even and odd numbers depending on the end of your license plate. I mean, it was a horror show. Uh, our same store sales were up a full 12%, which in food service lingo, that's a big deal for a QSR company to show those guys. And that was all as a result of Munchkins. And now we look back 50 years later almost, and, 
and it's still going strong. It's still a wonderful part of our, our, our menu offering, still a popular favorite with people of all ages. And, and it came from Edna, who, who created it. And uh, luckily we listened. So what are some of the other innovations that you helped put in place that you're most proud of? Um, iced coffee. Uh, most people don't realize it, but until the 1990s, iced coffee was only sold in Rhode Island. People around the country never drank iced coffee. And, and it migrated from the franchise owners in Providence, Rhode Island, to being an incredibly important and forerunner of what I see as an increasingly amount of uh, coffee product being sold cold uh, with nitrogen, cold brew, all, all of the products that you see now on these draft sticks that they now have in the new current design of the Duncan store really got kicked off with iced coffee in the 1990s. And, and that too came from our franchise owners in Rhode Island. And in some, some markets, it, it could be as much as uh, 10 or 20% of sales during the summer months. It's a, it's a, it's a huge success. Culotta is another. Uh, when we got uh, bought out and we sold the company in, uh, in, the in 1990 to a large English company, they had owned Baskin Robbins uh, for years. And they asked me if I wouldn't take over responsibility for that brand as well. And I did. So I was running both Duncan and Baskin. I took the marketing guy from, from, uh, from Duncan and made him president of Baskin. And the first thing he did was create a beverage at Baskin. Baskin had only been an ice cream. They never had a beverage. And Baskin had tremendous uh, uh, flavor capabilities. They were doing cold brew and, and uh, fine Ara Arabic, Arabica beans way before it was popular and well-known. And, and, uh, and so they created something called Cappuccino Blast, and it was a huge success at Baskin Robbins. And that business migrated to uh, Culotta at Duncan. It took a couple of years, even though I was running both businesses, it still took a couple of years to migrate it from the flavor, flavor capabilities of Baskin to, to Duncan. And that became a huge daytime offering. And that in itself, uh, I mean, I think added at the time two to $300 million piece of afternoon business we never had before as an afternoon pick me up and treat. And so those are a couple of the, of the more notable ones. Yeah, one of the other things I guess that you that you put in place was a university program for the franchisees. Um, and what did that do um, to help them learn about the business? And you're very keen on the franchise environment. Um, so why is that? And why do you feel that the owners are a key to the brand success? Well, it really is a partnership. There's no question about it. They're not employees of the company. They are independent businessmen. They are in business for themselves, but not by themselves. We're very much a partnership. Uh, basically, management's job is to sort of shepherd uh, the, the insurance that we keep a viable offering to the consumer continuously, that we keep our competitive advantage, and that we engineer a system that will provide them a fair return for their investment and the time and effort that they have invested in the business. And we have to work hand in hand. The creation of DDU or Duncan University was something I lifted from McDonald's. Uh, when McDonald's came to Massachusetts, my dad wanted to go into the hamburger business. And as a result, they asked me if I wouldn't get a job with the first McDonald's that opened uh, in Weymouth, Massachusetts, the first one in greater Boston area. And I was the fry man. So if you want to know how to make great fresh French fries, not frozen, but fresh French fries, uh, as they were originally made at McDonald's, I'm your guy. 
Um, I did go to work for them to try to help my dad open his business before I went back to business school. And, um, and uh, let me see, I lost a little bit of my train of thought, but, but um, DDU was an idea that I basically uh, got from my exposure to McDonald's. And so within weeks of the time that I assumed um, responsibility for, for uh, the CEO ship of the company, basically set up a program of six weeks of training for all new franchisees and for some employees uh, who had critical field jobs. Everybody had to go through it. And, and it was um, four weeks of production training, how to make the product to ensure that because all we sold were coffee and donuts, we had to make sure that our products were superior to everything else in the marketplace. We were fastidious about how we made both, both coffee and donuts, and two weeks of management training. And uh, if they didn't pass the production part of it uh, in those days, basically we were prepared to give them back their money as a franchise. And this is a way to inculcate them. I spoke at the opening day each year of every session of Dunkin' Donut University, welcoming people and inculcating and what we stood for, why our product was important, how we filled a need in people's lives day in and day out, and the role that they played in that. Again, trying to align everybody you know, through communication into the system. And so uh, franchisees are critical. They're critical in meeting the customer on a day-to-day -day basis. They know their community. They know their employees. They're the ones who execute day in and day out. And they're also, as we can see from my prior stories, uh, sources of tremendous innovation and, and help. They do know the business. They have their finger on the pulse of the business day in and day out. It's a wonderful marriage, and it, it leads to great results. How has the franchising environment changed over the years? I think... It was in its early phases back after the Second World War. This whole sort of wave of franchising really started with the automobile culture, the Second World War, the interstate highways. Uh, you saw a proliferation of all kinds of businesses, Holiday Inn, Dunkin' Donuts, McDonald's. A lot of them were restaurants, but a lot of other businesses, H&R Block. And, and there really wasn't a codification of best practices. And, the, and, and it can be a, a, a testing relationship if not everybody's singing off the same song sheet, if everybody doesn't understand that they're between the franchisor and the franchisee, share a, a common goal in terms of the vitality of the system. And if they're not measuring the right things and if they're not working cooperatively. So I have watched over the years as quite truthfully, we move from a sort of a bull in a china shop phase, I would say in the early years of the 50s into a sort of adolescence, which I lived through in the 70s, uh, not having really all of our processes and procedures and our communications down the way they are to a much more mature uh, and much more effective way of operating together. I mean, even to the point where franchisees participate in the International Franchise Association, where they, they have a vested interest in keeping that system viable and to ensure that it doesn't get blindly legislated in the wrong way that could affect everybody to its detriment. Um, so there. I've watched it go through through many phases, and I think the answer to your question is getting better, more sophisticated. Both franchisors and franchisees are getting wiser about what doesn't work and what does, what kind of communications, what kind of common objectives they have to share, and where they really are in, together trying to build a system and the viability of that system. So I think it's getting better. How do you see the pandemic affecting the industry and franchising? I think that uh, the pandemic will pass, and I think I believe the pandemic will pass. 
I think that as these companies have matured, basically they have gone through three separate phases. Early on, they were all founded by operators, people who developed a unique operating system that provided a real benefit to the consumer, mostly women entering the workforce who had to find an alternative for homes, for meals prepared at home, as they went from one out of three uh, people, women working outside the home to two out of three by the year 2000. So I, I think that, that basically uh, that was the first phase. The second phase was those people, that, those companies that kept a solid operating um, orientation and grafted onto that first-rate marketing, packaged goods marketing, just like Procter & Gamble's as we did with product managers and, and a lot of on-air and national broadcast building brand. Those next uh, companies were able to na navigate that, keep the operations, graft on uh, strong marketing. They were the ones that emerged the next. And then now we're in the third phase where technology spells the difference. Those that kept both strong operations, great marketing, but now also understand all the importance and impact of digitization. So the, the ability to be able to customize today for the customer, um, what their offers are, uh, mobile ordering, customer relation marketing, uh, pay by, by, uh, by chip, or pay by, by phone, all of the things that make it even more convenient than ever before to be able to shop. And I think that uh, those larger companies that make up the vast majority of QSR are fundamentally making these pivots to um, pick up outside um, drive-throughs. Uh, and the fact is when this all emerges, that in my view, this is my opinion, they will emerge stronger and better. And unfortunately, the independents, the mom and pops that don't have the, the resources to be able to keep up with all of this technology because it takes talent and money to do that, I think we'll begin to start to probably already have, can't weather the storm. And unfortunately, some of them are going to fade from the scene. And I think that, 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 that where, where we had zero growth in terms of new distribution of new restaurants, I think you'll see some of these uh, smaller independents leave the scene. And I think you'll see chains take over the space that's now made available. So if you can hold on long enough, I think that the pandemic will pass and those people that can put into effect the help that digitization and technology provides will emerge stronger and better than ever. What do you feel was your biggest challenge and what lessons did you learn from it? I think the biggest challenge occurred back in the 70s when I lost way and, and, and uh, and I almost took the company, the franchisees, and all our employees off a cliff with me. When I had the wrong mission, I wanted to be a franchising company instead of a, a, a focused donut and coffee company. And I had the wrong objectives. I wanted to grow earnings 50%. And I was being seduced and lured by a public ownership and a, and a lofty price earnings ratio. And I had my eye on the wrong thing. I, wasn't, I took my eye off the customer and off the franchise owner and off the staff, and I was paying attention to Wall Street. And, and that was a serious era. And it was almost the undoing of the business and almost the undoing of me. Uh, and as I said, I, I luckily uh, transformed in the midst of that and saw the era of my ways and changed. But that was the biggest challenge I think I really faced. And that set me on a course of, of listening. I think you picked it up exactly right. That's the secret is, is to stay humble, stay open, keep learning, keep growing. You don't have all the answers. Uh, you have a collaborative staff. If you get great people around you, 
You know, there was an old saying that in Rome, when they would send the generals out to Gaul and all of the outlying territories, when they came back to Rome and all the parades and they were sitting in the chariots, there was a guy sitting over them with a little um, olive wreath and he kept whispering in his ear, fame is fleeting. Fame, remember, fame is fleeting. Well, that was good advice to me. Um, don't get caught up in your own press and, uh, and stay humble. So you've been teaching, consulting and writing. Do you ever miss the day-to-day -day running of the corporation? I, I, I miss the people. I, I loved the team. We had a complimentary team. We were together for over 20 years, almost the top 10 or 15 executives in the company. It was a, it was a wonderful environment. I loved going to work. I loved what I did. Someone said, if you love what you do, you're lucky you never have to work a day in your life. And, and I could say, honest to God, that was true for me. Luckily, uh, the planning process that I used in business was the one I used in my own life. So I knew when my playing days at Duncan were going to be over. And I basically began to start to fill my second career. What did I want to be? What did I want to have? What were the four or five levers I was going to pull? And basically, I went to became a trustee at, at Babson. I taught there as an adjunct professor, but I also was part of uh, governance for years. I became a, a director of Sonic, and I had a wonderful 20, almost 25-year relationship with Cliff Hudson, the CEO of the company, who, who is a wonderful friend and a and a, and, a, and, a, and a wonderful executive, a world-class executive. And I, I built new friends and relationship there. And I also went on the board at Domino's with, um, with Bain Capital when they bought the business. And I was there for 14 years. And or I can't remember, close to at least a dozen. About, I may be a little foggy in terms of exact, the exact time. But, but I, I, I built new relationships and new friendships and fit into new cultures. And that kept me growing. And now, quite truthfully, writing brought me into a whole new world of, uh, of, of publishers and agents and publicists and, and, uh, and writers, people like yourself. This is a whole new activity. So every few years, I keep adapting my own personal life as, as we did our business life uh, as it kept changing. And I think that's probably, uh, if there is a fountain of youth, I think that's probably it, man. And so I've, I've kept adapting and I've, I've found new meaning and, and new friendships and new relationships. But I do miss the people. I do miss the people. Get back at Duncan. Let's talk about Duncan now that that's how we refer to it. You know, they lost the donuts a while back. Do you think that that is a signs of, of its adaptability? Absolutely. I'll tell you a little story, actually. And I did tell this to the Duncan people. They were kind enough to call me to tell me they were changing the name and wanted to know what my feelings were. And I told him I thought it was absolutely the right thing to do. I thought it was spot on. Back in 1992, uh, when, when uh, Glenn Batchelor, who was head of marketing at Duncan, went to Baskin to run it, uh, Jack Schaefer, who is now the president of Duncan, hired a guy by the name of Will Cussell out of Reebok. And Will comes into the company and he says, you know, you guys, I don't know you're all this crisp about what you want to be. Are you a bakery? Are you a coffee shop? Are you both? You know, I'd like to do a, a, a positioning study. I said, oh, my goodness, a position. how much is this going to cost? It's $250,000. That's a lot of money. I've had some, some off and on experiences with consultings. I'm not sure they all pay. And Jack said, look, Will is a top-rate marketing guy. Listen to him. Uh, uh, let's give him his way. He's brand new. And sure enough, they call a guy, Rick Rakowski, I think his name was. Uh, and, and they do a study, and they come back, and they say, you know, we've studied your business. And you've changed the way you go to market. 
the way you configure the stores. Seltzer is a whole bunch of things. Basically, we think that coffee is the main. You are a beverage business. This is 1991 or two. Yeah, beverage is really the way to go. And we think that you have to lead with your advertising. We had had for 17 years Fred the Baker, Michael Vale, time to make the donuts. This was a major change. And, and Rick made a compelling uh, case for changing the positioning of the business. And it was a result of that positioning that we then sat down in 1992, I think it was, and we said, you know, maybe we should change the name. That we really aren't Dunkin' Donuts anymore. Donuts really are about 10 or 15% of the business. You know, we're selling bagels, we're selling, we're selling uh, croissants at the time, we're selling muffins, and we have a whole wide range of things. We're selling a lot more beverages. You know, the business had gone from 40% beverages and 60% donuts to really now 60 or 65% beverages. And the whole business had shifted on us, which this study uncovered in a very graphic way. And we considered doing it then. But by that time, we had sold the business to Allied Lions, a large uh, um, uh, conglomerate in the UK. And so I went to Tony Hales, my boss in London, and he said, oh, whoa. And we just went, oh, excuse me. We just paid a fortune for, uh, for the business, and we prefer you not changing. So we put it on the shelf, but it, the idea had gone back all that far, right back to 1992. So it, it's an idea that we thought, and that by, by now the time had come to, to make that change. One last question. Something that you wrote in the book, um, and I wanted to you to to reflect more on it. How is successful leadership part art and part science? The art part, I think, it, it may be more inborn. It's curiosity, it's uh, maybe even aspiration, it's innovation, the sort of these intuitive things, not even intuitive, these are basically things that you may be born with, like intellect and, and a natural way you're thrown, your propensity as a person. Uh, I like to think of myself that I came to the job already being a collaborative, collegial person. I like to work that way. That's the way I'm most comfortable. And, and that's a little bit harder to train, but you can. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. I think that's just sort of the makeup of your genetic code. Um, so those are sort of the art part of it that, that go with it, They're sort of the, the, the balance part. The other part is the part that I put in the book is the processes, the policies. Uh, the, the role of the CEO, what functions you, you fulfill as a CEO, what jobs you have to do. And those, I think, are more easily taught. But I think in combination, both apply in order to make a successful CEO, plus values, what you value in life, um, you know, things that, that, that deal with trust and, and uh, integrity and humility, I think, are all things that you value. So it's a it's a it's a it's sort of a, a, a brew or stew of different characteristics that make up for an effective leader. Part of which is style, and part of which is is uh, training and skills. And so that's what I was getting at when I said part of it's art. It's it's not all book learning. You can't learn it all out of a book. Some of it has to be um, dependent upon knowing yourself. Uh, uh, when I was a CEO, they didn't have a book called uh, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman, uh, which really deals with uh, the important role over and above IQ is the ability to really understand yourself and understand others, what you're good at, what you're not good at, how you're thrown as a, as a person, and what your natural tendencies are, and to be open to that. And, and I think that that part 
is something that also can be learned. And people are now delving into that and, and providing real keys as to how to do a better job at cultivating your emotional intelligence, the things that you were born with, the things that you acquired as a result of your natural tendencies as you grow and as you mature in life. And then there are things that can be done in terms of processes, practices that, that I've outlined in the book. And so I, I hope that answers your question, but that's a why it's a combination of, of factors, I think, that it takes to be an effective leader. Thank you so much. Um, it, it's definitely a must read for anyone in the restaurant industry uh, and particularly um, anyone who's in the franchise environment. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your invitation. Enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.